Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today we'll be hearing part one of a two-part series following Easter Sunday. We're in church. You know, I, I uh, sent out a message this week that, uh, of a study that was done. Granted, you know, you always have to look to see who funded the study, but everybody's funding studies, so every study has a bias. But at any rate, this, I think this was funded by rock and roll people. But uh, they, they found out that uh, people that go uh, to concerts um, live longer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, uh, and so people, I, I include worship in there, you know. And uh, the, the, the factor is the happy factor that uh, when you, you're usually at a concert, you are having happy feelings, and people who have happy feelings regularly live longer. I hope you're happy, you know, I just... <laughs> so, uh, we had a fabulous Easter last week. I, I think, you know, I've been doing this a couple years, and... Uh, <laughs> I have to say, on the, on the meter, I think that was the happiest Easter uh, we have ever known, experienced. I, I wanted you to just look at some faces and feel the emotion of these people that are entering into the new life. Almost 70 people getting baptized. And I, I love the families. I love the emotion, the celebration. Uh, you know, here he's, she's saying, is it really cold? He's wearing a wetsuit, she's not. <laughs> yeah, I love this one. This was so powerful for me. New life. And yeah, the tears uh, as Ella, as she came to the shore, just seeing mom and dad crying made me cry. There's a brave soul. We couldn't determine if it was 59 degrees or 60. (laughs) Yeah. So fun. So fun. So in just a moment, I want to pray with you. But before I do, I want to set the stage with where we're going. I met with the staff this week, and I said, you know what, I don't want to go back to the book of Acts just quite yet. I feel like we're not completely baked in the resurrection, that the resurrection has a message for us that I think most of, much of American Christianity doesn't know. And I know you're different, you're amazing, you get it all, Uh, but somebody out there doesn't quite get it, that when we think of Easter, it it's at a minimum, it's a, it's a good story that turns around a tragedy. That two and a half days later, it's like, oh, whew, that was a rough one. You know, it's Friday, but Sunday's a coming, right? Then others of us interpret the resurrection as, oh, okay, he said he would forgive us, and because he rose from the dead, then I really am forgiven. And so we're just forgiven people, waiting for heaven. We don't know what to do, rocking in a hammock, hammock, drinking Dr. Pepper, just forgiven, waiting for heaven. 
And then others of us say, no, 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 it's, it's, we're more than forgiven. Um, we're, we're, we're hopeful. Because of the resurrection, I get to go to heaven. It's all about heaven, and someday I'll be raised from the dead. And that's true, too. But we might be missing one of the most important things, and that is new life. Paul was a bigot. Paul was a Christian hater. Paul was a man bent on locking up and persecuting people who were religiously different than him. And that was Paul. And you ask and I ask, can that man be changed? That's a great question. You see, we have this inside bias that we're not so bad. You know, that if I were God, I would have loved me too. I'm amazing. I can't, just cute, cuddly, you know, God should love me. But what's your vice? What's your Achilles heel? Or should I say heels? That uh, would be the areas of your life that you would say, oh, golly, God needs to change me. And if you kind of draw a blank, you might just turn to your spouse. I bet they know exactly <laughs> what needs to change. So the question would be, is there hope for you? Paul the bigot, the Christian hater, transformed, not in heaven, but in this life. And that comes out of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection is the power for you to become a new you. Think of the self-help section of Barnes and Nobles or when you used to go to a bookstore. In the 80s, there was no self-help section, did you know? Apparently, Americans needed no help. But as brokenness increased, as we became self-aware of our own stuff, marriages fell apart, we didn't know what to do with kids, didn't know what to do with our bodies, didn't know what to do with our brains, the self-help section kept growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and growing until it wasn't just one aisle, it was three aisles, because we need so much help. And I'm not bagging on the self-help section. It's just a barometer that says what America wants right now is a new life, a changed life. And yet, oftentimes, we as the church forget to deliver the message that would relate to Americans the most. We say, you're forgiven? Wait for heaven. It's going to be better. But in between is the power of the resurrection for you to be a new you. And that's what we're going to study this morning. It's the implication, and we're going to do it from Romans chapter 6. But before we go there, let me take just a moment to pray. Father, it's our prayer this morning that you would speak to us and that you would open our hearts and actually change our lives. So we give you the permission to meddle, to not only speak to us through your holy word, but actually reach inside our hearts and and minds and and put your finger on the area or areas that you want to touch and change. God, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And because of the power of the resurrection, we ask that here today, by your Holy Spirit, you would work in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to jump right down to verse 1, which is uh, for our booth, slide 5, and uh, expedite this message. Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Now, granted, you feel like you're joining an argument that's been going on for some time, and he has been building this argument for five chapters, so I apologize if you feel like you just got on a train that's going 90 miles an hour. He's asking the question, because of grace, back in chapter 5, verse 20, he said, wherever sin abounded, Grace abounded more. And the word could be translated superabounds. How many of you like grace? <laughs> yeah, I've said that. How many of you enjoy judgment, shame, <laughs> guilt, you know? Uh, we love grace. And so wherever sin abound, grace superabounded. It trumped the sin. And it's good news for you and me because it, it, when you come to Christ, you become aware of who you're not. You become aware not only of the things that you've done. I mean, mo- let's be honest. Most of us have not uh, raped and pillaged villages. But we are aware when we go to bed at night of who we're not, what we could have, should have done, could have been more loving, could have been more helpful, could have been kinder, a kind word would have been helpful right there. I, I hear my words of, of judgment, I hear my words of shortness, and I think, ah, uh, it's not who I want to be. But other times we deal with darker stuff. We're, we're people of greed. Guy could be happy. I could be happy, and dot, 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 if. And you fill it in. What is it? One more Maserati, you could be happy. One more, uh, one more house, one more wife, one less husband. <laughs> you fill it in. There's, there's always something out there. And then we think, what, what's wrong with me? Why am I coveting? Why can't I be content and just drive in my lane and just thinking, that's a better lane, that's a better lane. So, it's, but it's not just greed or coveting, uh, anger. Why am I so short? What is it with me that I'm Mr. Perfect, I'm Mr. Right Angle, Mr. Plum, and everybody else is just somehow skewed? Why do I go around? Either I say it or I judge him in my own mind. Does Christ change me? Or it's lust. Not just sexual lust, lust for this, lust for that. Lust is, is literally translated intense longing. And there's all these things that just kind of, we make uh, treaties with them. We just say, you know what? It'll get better when I get to heaven. It's just, I don't know. I'm Irish. My father was this way. My mother was this way. It's just, it's with me. So these things, and Paul tells us It's not just, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? He's really asking the question, shall we not change? Shall we not transform? Shall we just stay right here 
just to say, well, I just need the grace, need the grace, or should I participate in this transformation that comes out of the resurrection? So that's the big question that Paul's asking, and he answers his question three times with the word, we know. And so I'm going to play off of that verb, we know, to show you the three answers that Paul gives, the three reasons why we should participate in the resurrection in the here and now and become this person that God's called us to be. If you said to me, Mark, come on, settle down. I don't think a person can really change that much. Well, maybe your mind needs to change. How much can a person change in this life? Have you thought about that? I don't know. Why don't you be the one that experiments and find out? To change is not you up on a hill like a fool contemplating uh, change. That's not how change happens. Change is love. Change is you in the moment, in the transaction with you and another person saying, oh, that's going to be hard. And if you love, that's a transformational moment. If you decide, no, I'm not loving here and I'm not loving them, then God says, okay, you can repeat that grade. We're going to bring that around and you're going to learn it one more time. I've been in the second grade for 10 years. (laughs) So here's the three reasons why we should not continue to live in sin and participate in this transformational, resurrected life. Uh, Number one, in verse two, he says, by no means, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order for the purpose that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, here it is, here's the kicker line, we too may live a new life. That's the promise of the resurrection, live a new life. If we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. So his first argument is that you've been united with Christ. I like the translation, you've been fused with Christ. I've broken a lot of bones in my lifetime. Uh, And they tell me every time that I'll never break that bone there again because it's always stronger wherever you break your bone. It becomes fused. There's things that happen in life where we become fused. In marriage, we talk about the two shall become one, flesh. They're fused together. In the same way, you have been fused with Christ. So, because of the resurrection and new life, you are no longer longer solely you. You are not Han Solo just going through life on your own, yet you show up for church, and then you're on your own, yet you have your devotions, then you're on your own. You now are united with Christ. We used to have church picnics um, when things were a little more manageable, and, um, and I remember the gunny sack races. 
And I remember thinking, I could run so fast if you weren't tied to me. <laughs> I could be amazing. But this three-legged race, you know, and sometimes we treat Christ this way. You know, just leave me alone. I'll go do my thing, and I'll meet you at devotions in church. But you're united with Christ. In your marriage, you're united with Christ. In your business, you're united with Christ. In your emotions, in your attitudes, Christ is there. How are you doing, little buddy? It's good news for those of us that want to change. So he says, we died with Christ. Verse 2, we died to sin How can we live in it any any longer? So when Christ died on the cross, this incredible, excruciating execution, the Bible says, by faith, you died with him. There There was some kind of unity. When you believe that he took your pain, he took the responsibility of your sin, not just your sin, but the responsibility and outcome of your sin on himself, the uniting, the fusion took place. And you, by faith, the old you, died with him. And you say, well, I don't know if I like that perspective. It's just kind of mind over matter. Is it? Cognitive scientists tell us how you frame Life, how you frame an issue, changes everything. And so if you go through life saying Christ isn't with me, that's a bias. But you can change your bias and say, no, he is with me and I died with him on the cross, the old me. Now, the part of you that really is just idiosyncratically you, uh, we're not worried about. So you say to me, I love jazz over rock. God's not really interested in changing that, you know. So you guys, you rock lovers say, oh, he needs to change those jazz people. And they just, um, if you love blue over red, fine. You can love blue all the way into heaven. Uh, if, if you love the forest over the ocean, fine. Those aren't the, the idiosyncrasy of you is not what God worries about. You're your own little snowflake and you get to keep your own little snowflake. <laughs> Okay, But the sinful, or should I say the non-loving part of you, God is interested in changing. That should be good news. When Christ got up, you got up. Your sin was paid for, and now the new you is alive. So he says, we were baptized, uh, in verse 3, he says, we were baptized into Christ. So just as we died is past tense, We were baptized, and so that's where I want to take you back to the ocean in your mind and imagine this, when someone goes into the water, that is symbolic, it's a sacrament, an outward expression of an inward work. You go into the water symbolizing you're dead, you're toast, it's over. I'm not believing in the old me any longer. And then when I come up out of the water, I'm the new me. So it's an outward expression of what's happening on the inside. 
That's why in the early church, baptism was so important to connect physically with what's happened spiritually. One, one of the, our problems in the West is we live, because of the influence of Greek thinking that's come down for 2,000 years, we tend to be dualists and we separate the physical from the spiritual. Like, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't go to church much, but in my heart, I'm going to church. I don't read my Bible much, but in my heart, I'm spiritual. Uh, I, I don't do this, but in my heart, and we use that kind of language, which is dualistic, whereas in the Bible, it's holistic. Everything's connected. So even in communion, which we just took, uh, you and I were celebrating an inward work. I get to taste forgiveness. <laughs> Isn't that kind of cool? You say, well, it's just... It's just bread, and it's just a cup. It's nothing. You get to taste. Show and tell. Wow. Holistically, physically sharing with what's happened spiritually. So in baptism, it's a picture of new you, new life. That we may live, he says, a new life. And so we're united with him. This beautiful unity that's taken place. I am amazed that Christ would die in my stead. It's just remarkable that this thing happened. Uh, a recent now deceased atheist, actually he called himself an anti-theist, which means I'm not only non-God, I am against God. Uh, Christopher Hutchins, brilliant mind, brilliant thinker, way smarter than me, too, way too much gray matter up there. He actually had the audacity in his life to say, it is immoral for you to believe that Jesus took your sins on the cross. You have to bear the responsibility of your own actions, and you cannot irresponsibly give him your sin. I mean... That's bold. Yeah, good luck with that one. I choose to believe he did. And he asked, well, then what do you base it on? And I say the Bible. And he says, that also is wrong, to believe in revealed knowledge. You have to go with logic. And he says, it's illogical to think that someone would pay the price for your sin. You know, I've had people, when Jan and I are out, for dinner, uh, we've had the waiter come over and say, you know, someone else picked up the tab. You're free to go. I said, who did this? They said, they asked not to be known. And I quickly scour the restaurant. <laughs> and then I say to the waiter, well, did they tip you also? And, and can we? And he says, no, no, they tipped me well. As illogical as that feels... It happened, right? And Jesus picked the tab up for you, but that means now you're not only bound with him in forgiveness, but you're bound with him in the new resurrected life. Go with it. Reason number two. Dead slaves don't serve old masters. That's Paul's argument. 
You were a slave to your old life, to these sins that you didn't want to do, and you habitually did them. You habitually thought that way. You habitually, and, and, and they were your master, but now that you're dead, you're not responsible for that master anymore. You're free to go. You know, in the, the Pirates of the Caribbean in Disneyland, they, you know it's a good sermon when they quote something from Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> Disneyland. Dead men tell no lies. And you know, I, for years, I didn't know what they were saying. It's kind of a whispering, dead men tell no lies, you know. And, 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 and I'd say to my son, so what, what are they saying about dead men? They, we have tales? What, what is the tale? And they said, no, dad. <laughs> they tell no tales. Well, what does that mean? Dad, it means if someone's going to think on you, you kill them so they can't tell about you. And that's what the pirates did. Dead men can't talk, right? In the same way, dead men don't sin. You cannot sell sin. You cannot sell the old life in a graveyard. How's that working for you? I'm a salesperson, and I go out of graveyards all the time. What's the response? You don't get any response. They're dead. So Paul uses this argument to argue for your freedom. He says in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. You know, death pays all debt. Whatever you owe when you die, you don't owe it anymore. It's just the way it works. So if you, by faith, spiritually have died to your old self, you owe nothing to your old life and your old master. He has nothing on you. You are free. Another way to think about this is your old self has been rendered inoperable. You have a new default in your system that you now are a part of. There's this new solidarity with Jesus Christ. And you are not answerable to your old self any longer. In America, we don't easily think about ourselves as being slaves. We have a, a story about slavery in our nation that uh, we're ashamed of. It's a part of our history. But did you know that slavery still exists in the world and is thriving more than it's ever existed on the planet just because of the sheer numbers? And did you know at the time of the writing of the New Testament that 80% of the entire Roman Empire, the population, were slaves? Everyone was a slave. Regardless of race, regardless of background or ethnicity, if you were born into a family of a slave, you were automatically a slave. And so you could be bought and sold based on what you offered. You're a carpenter, you're a teacher, you're a professor. Even professors were slaves and sold and so forth. But a slave has to do what the master says. That's the way it works. Far more than an employee has to do what the employer says.
because there's a limit to that. You have HR. <laughs> and you have civil liberties. So, but in the ancient world, you had no rights. You had nowhere to go. The master had control of you. And now as Americans, we think, I'm free. Nobody controls me. And if I don't like what the government's doing, I just vote them out and vote new government in. But are you really free? Are you free from yourself? You say to me, what do you mean? Are you free to not think what you're thinking? Are you free to not do what you keep doing? Are you free to love when you keep not loving? I'll pick something obvious. Are you free from this thing? (laughs) That research says we check six to eight hours a day. Someone might have sent me a message. (laughs) You know, I I don't know. It makes me feel so important. And I get this this hit on my brain every time. There it is again, you know. Message from CNN. So slavery is different. We're enslaved in our freedom. We become slaves to the things we start doing in our freedom. Paul says, I will not become a slave to anything or anyone anymore. I have been freed from this. So Paul's arguing that, that you can't sell sin in a graveyard. If you agree that you died with Christ on the cross. The old you, whatever you wanted to do, all that, that junky stuff died there. Christ paid for it, and now it's the new you. You just say, when sin comes around, I'm not buying it. I'm Teflon. I'm not buying it. There's a great story that uh, I think helps us to understand slavery Back in the 1840s, there's this couple, William and Ellen Kraft. You can read about it in uh, the Smithsonian uh, website. Ellen and William Kraft were both slaves. They, they were born on different plantations. William became a carpenter. He was older than Ellen. Ellen was uh, born of, of biracial parents. Her, her mother was already biracial, and, uh, and then her father was a plantation owner, completely white. So she had four grandparents, only one of them was black. And so she was very, very fair-skinned. When they met, they fell in love in Georgia, but they didn't want to have children because they thought, you know, this, this is really bad, this plantation system where our kids get sold. We have a family and suddenly the kids are sold to other slave owners and we have nothing to say about it. But wouldn't it be great to escape and get away? So William had an idea how to get rid of this horrible, horrible slave system that tells me what to do. So he says, let's do this. I'm going to cut your hair. I'm going to dress you up as a white man and I'll be your slave. We're traveling to Philadelphia 
to visit your family and you're taking me along because I'm a carpenter and I'm going to work on your families. And they're going to ask you to sign for the slave that you're traveling with. We won't travel in the same car. We'll, we'll board the train together, but you'll all go into the slave car and you'll ride first class. Uh, we'll put your arm in a sling. You broke your arm, so now you can't sign anything. And we're going to travel first class by train, by coach, and by steamship. And we're going to get to Philadelphia. Well, you can read about it. They wrote a book on it in 1860 called A Thousand Miles to Freedom. It's phenomenal and daring, almost nearly getting caught each time. But if you ask the question, what drove them to risk their very lives? Because if you're caught escaping as a slave, no bueno. What would drive them? Because they didn't want to be a slave anymore. So these little treaties that we make with self, it's, it's slavery. You're free now to finally be the person that God has created you to be. The third reason, are you still there? Yes. Wonderful is absolutely the new life has begun. So go for it. See how much this transformation can happen. He says in verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know, there's the third, we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So Jesus, when he came up from the grave, he's solely sold out to God, solely in the presence of God, and he says, we somehow, mystically, spiritually, are risen with him into this new life. And because this new life has come, broken in upon us in, in advance of death, it is broken in upon us that you and I have a new default in our lives to be like Christ. That's the new you. And that's the best you. Wouldn't you like to be the best you? I mean, the best iteration of you? You know, as we peel away the onion, got better, got better, got better, got better. What is the best iteration of you? And Christ, with all of his power, is determined for that to happen. More love, more love, more love. You become more this new life than you were the old life. How cool is that? Where people say, wow, you should have met the old Mark. No, you should not have met him. Not very nice, not very cool. And you and I get to change. So we adapt more and more to our new address, to our new environment with Christ and what he wants for our lives. Rose Martinez, who is a missionary from our church, one of the earliest sent out. We mostly partner with nationals, 
But she uh, was a Latina, uh, actually literally Mexican-American, grew up right here in San Diego and parts of Orange County. And she went out at the age of 19 to change the world. Went to the School of Horizon Evangelism School, and she moved to Thailand, wanting to change the world, not know how, not, not know how. And uh, <laughs> she almost died on the streets of Thailand till a mother took her in who had an orphanage and taught Rose Thai, and she adapted increasingly to the culture until finally she handed the orphanage over to Rose, and Rose started more and more orphanages in Thailand and now in Cambodia. And all these kids call her mom. She has over maybe 2,000 kids by now in Thailand that all call her mom, that are, that are adults now, that all raised by her, single mom, that raised them all. And she shared with me one of the recent times that she was here, I asked her, don't you miss San Diego? I mean, isn't this heaven on earth? And she says, you know, Mark, I do enjoy visiting for a week or two, but Thailand is my home. You know, I have dual citizenship. I, I'm, I prefer Thai food. I prefer the Thai language. I definitely re- prefer the Thai sense of humor. They have a great sense of humor. I prefer the fact that the, the Thai are much more laid back than uptight Americans. And, Mark, I want to die and be buried in Thailand. And as I heard her say that, I thought, that's kind of our story. I'm so in love with Jesus that I speak Jesus ease. <laughs> I'm so in love with Jesus that I just, I feel like I'm a more a part of the kingdom of God than I am a part of this kingdom. And it's become a part of me. In, in every way. Last week when we were coming to the shore with the two people that I baptized before I raced over here to be with you, I, to one person, I pointed to the shore and I said, do you see that sign on the shore? And he looked and he said, no. I said, it's imaginary. But if you could see the sign, it says, no fishing allowed. You cannot dig up your old self. I just buried you. It's gone. And we have witnesses. So you can't come back and go fishing. Like the Israelites that would, oh, it was so good in Egypt. It was so wonderful. You can't go back to your old life. Oh, it was so, it wasn't that good. And Christ has come in to change your life and my life. Now, there's other reasons why we want to change, but uh, I'm often thinking about the analogy of metamorphosis, the caterpillar to the butterfly that we often use, right? Can you imagine the butterfly saying, you know, I really miss slugging it out as a dirty old caterpillar. (laughs) I had so many more legs then. And I loved c- carrying this 
whole weighty body up the stem of a plant so I could just munch on the leaves. Oh, yeah, the leaves. Now as a butterfly, all I do is flit and fly. I float, and I go from beautiful flower to beautiful flower. So boring. Love to eat. Chomp, 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 then climb down the stem, go to another plant, climb it back up. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Say, dude, you're a butterfly now. Go with it. Just float. Float. Go with it. And that's the same with Christianity. Yeah, I know you, th- you, th- you, you thought you were amazing. But Jesus has the best iteration of you in mind. So here's some questions I want you to think about before next week. By the way, I'm not done. We're going to celebrate Easter next week, too. <laughs> Because I know where you're thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, Mark, that's a great inspirational talk. Nice job. But what do I do with my mind? My mind, my stinking thinking between the two ears tends to go here, tends to go there. I'm so glad you thought of it. I'm going to deal with that next week. You got to come back. Others of you are thinking, yeah, that's really good. It's spiritual. But what about real action? Where... My hand goes here, my feet go here, my eyes go here. We're going to deal with your body next week because those are the two areas that we really have to get into the nitty-gritty, the mind and the actions. But before we go, here are some questions to think about. Number one, how much can a Christian change? If you have a bias that says, only a little bit, you have to deal with your bias. You have to deal with your bias. What if the sky's the limit? Secondly, in what, in what aspect is, of transformation am I passive and what aspect am I active? I'm digging, unearthing something in you because in America there's this bias that I'm just passive. I just can't help myself, you know. If Jesus wants to change me, he's got to change me. It's up to him. It's got to be his power because I can't do a thing. I'm just going to go on being my old me until Jesus does something. In fact, it's Jesus' fault that I'm not changing because I want to change, but he's not doing it. I can't do it. How passive are we? How active are we supposed to be? Do I have to press on the yoke and say, I'm going to change Dagnabbit, I'm going to really change? How passive, how active? It's a good question, I think. It's not academic. We'll talk about that next week. And finally, what area of your life would you like to see God change you? Besides tall, dark, and handsome. What area of your life? And if you're, you're just drawing a blank... Like I said, ask your spouse. She might be able to help you. Or your good friends. It's a great, great question. And can God change me? So here's how it rolls. I think God will actually take your Achilles heel, the thing that doesn't seem to change the most, and he wants to make that your strength. Great story I read 
three days ago about this woman in North Korea who converted. She wasn't born a Christian. She converted to Christianity uh, after going to China, crossed the border, met some Christians. They told her that Jesus had died for her sin, and she believed. She says, I got to get to know this Jesus. Well, here's what you need to know about her. Her story is she was one of the most greedy people that anybody knew. She was selfish about everything. There's not much in, in North Korea. So anything she got, she was selfish and hoarded everything. And everyone despised her for being such a greedy person. She comes back from her little visit over the border and she becomes the most giving person anybody knew. God took her Achilles heel and she, he made it her strength. And because of that, Eventually, her friends wanted to know how it happened. How did you become a butterfly? And she told them about Jesus. You see, this is not just pie in the sky, just you want to be a new youth, self-help. This is God's help, and it's also pertinent to evangelism because you become the walking billboard in moments where love is needed. The greedy person is no longer greedy and selfish anymore. Could be if you let it, but there's a new you. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.